Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Hill City Church in Springfield, Missouri. We are a community of believers who exist to glorify God by making disciples who bring gospel restoration to our city and world. For more information about Hill City or to support our ministry, you can find us online at hillcitysgf.org. So last week, Brad talked in Acts chapter 3, and we talked about the healing of a crippled man. Now, something I want to talk about a little bit more detail when it comes to this guy. So in chapter 4 and verse 22, Luke actually mentions that this guy specifically was over 40 years old. Now, some context here, a lot of times when we think about like Bible age, it's like kind of like dog years, where you think like, oh, this guy lived like hundreds of years, like, you know, that's it, it, his normal life. That's not the case anymore. That's like Old Testament, old stuff. This guy living 40 years is, is quite the accomplishment. And not only has he lived 40 years, he's lived 40 years in the absolute worst way. So back then, if you were born with some kind of an ailment, and specifically this guy was crippled from birth, you know, that was a sign that that guy or his parents, they were cursed. Like these guys, their parents must have lived in such wretched sin that God chose to punish them by giving them a kid who was crippled. Obviously, we can see our, our hearts probably churn a little bit thinking about that, but that was the prevailing thought of the day. So this man, at over four decades, four, almost four decades, has literally been living on the streets. And this isn't the streets of what we see now. There were no paved roads. People got around by animals. And from what we can tell, this man's legs were atrophied to the point of being completely useless. And so this guy literally day in, day out, would crawl. He'd crawl around all the, the animal exhaust. Uh, he'd have to work his way around. And what he would try to do is find the highly public areas, hoping for what we called alms. So the alms was this idea of you try to give to the poor anything extra that you had that you weren't already giving to the temple. And it's kind of this, this, this righteous push of being giving towards our fellow humans. Obviously, we see the New Testament church take that and run with it. But at the time, there was still this idea of alms even within traditional Jewish culture. So this man would literally crawl to the busiest intersections that he could. At this point, it was the temple. And so people would recognize this man because he'd been doing it for over 40 years. So people would go to the temple and be like, oh, yeah, I remember that guy. He's been there. Man, my dad used to see him when he was my age. Like, this guy's been around forever, and he still just sits there day in, day out, trying to beg for scraps, for anything, for, for pennies, just trying to get whatever he could. He's trying to, I'm sure at times, just hoping for eye contact, just hoping that somebody would acknowledge him and say, you are human. But oftentimes that didn't happen. But today, two men, Peter and John, come up to this man. And again, 40 plus years this guy is sitting there just hoping for anything. And one day these two jokers come up to him and say, get up. What happens? He does. He just stands up. Starts doing cartwheels in the streets. Praise God. The issue is, is again, when a well-known crippled man in the community all of a sudden starts doing cartwheels in the streets, gets a little bit of attention. So all of a sudden this draws a crowd. You know, records show that 2,000 came to saving faith that day because of this deed. Now that's those 2,000 that came to a saving faith, that, or faith, that's not saying that there were just 2,000. There were probably even more. And this lasted probably a couple hours. You're talking hundreds of people probably every minute. So it riles up quite the crowd. And the officials of the day, 
they obviously catch wind of this. They say, hey, what's the commotion over there? And it's starting to get dark. Uh, again, it had been, when, when it happens, it happens in the ninth hour. So that's around 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And they say that the officials come around about nighttime, around sunset. And so they've probably been going at it, Peter and John, for four to five hours, preaching the gospel, telling anybody that would listen about Jesus. So these officials come in. They say, what's all the commotion? They don't even know. Records show they don't even know who it is. They don't know who these guys are. They don't know what they're talking about. They're just like, this is ridiculous. we got to get this out. So the text actually says that they came upon them, which means literally, get out of here. We're not, I don't even know what you're talking about. This is too much. It's out in front of the temple. we got to get you out of here. So they drag them off to prison. What's interesting about these particular chiefs and officials, we'll go into it in a little bit more detail here in a second, but these are the exact same officials that put Christ to death. So these are some bad dudes. These aren't some guys that are just like, hey, stop doing that. Like these are some guys that have some power. And so that's what happens that these exact same guys grab Peter and John and they throw them in prison. And at this point, Peter and John, they have to be looking at themselves saying, hey, that was a good run, wasn't it? Like <laughs> that was a blast. All right, you know, they're celebrating in that, but it's probably bittersweet because at this point it's like, we had a good run. Like we did what we could. Hopefully everybody else, what's left, you know, hopefully they'll be able to pick up where we left off. And that's where we find ourselves today in, in Act 4. And so what I want to spend a little bit of time on, at least in the front end, is you know we, we went through the book of Luke a while ago. It took us about a year and a half to work through the book. Um, but we, initially when we started it, we talked a little bit about who Luke was. And that's an important thing to mention as we're kind of working through Acts because Luke was a, first he was a physician. So he was literally the guy who traveled with Paul and, you know, all those records of Paul getting flogged and beaten and imprisoned and all that stuff. Like Luke was the one that when they kicked him out of prison and said, hey, get out of here, Luke was the one who would heal him. And so Luke was around Paul all the time, healed all his wounds and allowed Paul to continue doing the ministry as long as he did. But Luke was also one of the greatest historians of his era. So he was originally sent by a guy, and he talks about this in the beginning of Luke in Luke 1, as well as in the beginning of Acts, in Acts 1, where he mentions this guy named Theophilus. So Theophilus literally gave, completely funded Luke's ministry. So Theophilus was a guy who had come to Luke, or somehow they got connected, and Theophilus said, hey, I need you to figure out what's going on over here. Like, I'm hearing a bunch about this Jesus guy. It sounds amazing. Here's credit card, like, no max on it. Do what you need to do. And so Luke, throughout his travels, talks to eyewitnesses. Like he talks to Mary Magdalene. He talks to the disciples. He talks to people who are in the crowd. He's like, hey, what, what happened here? And so he's getting firsthand account of everything that they talk about. And so here, what we see in Acts is just a continuation of that. It's essentially the second volume of the work of Luke. And brief aside, praise God for Theophilus, right? Like this dude... He's like, hey, I can't go myself, but here's a, bunch of, here's a bunch of cash. Like, I need you to figure this out. And it's because of the faithfulness of Theophilus that we have a majority of the New Testament. Like, Paul wrote more volumes. So he wrote all the letters to the churches, all that stuff. But it was Luke that actually wrote more volume within the New Testament. So it's because of the faithfulness of a guy like Theophilus that we're even, we have a New Testament to read and experience. And I think it's an important note to make because even Paul in Ephesians says this, that he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. 
He doesn't just say disciples. He doesn't just say that, hey, it's only the pastors that are supposed to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. They say everybody. So that's an important note to make for us, that we're going to have people who go. We're going to have the Lukes that go out there and do what they need to do. But the flip side is that we need Theophiluses. We need the senders. We need the people who can say, hey, like, I've got stuff going on here. I've got my business. But praise God, he's given me this business that I can send you to go. So praise God for Theophilus and that. And because of his record in this moment, we know that, again, the crowd goes from, uh, the, the early church goes from 3,000 to 5,000 in a day. For the, uh, the math wizards in here, that's an increase of 2,000 people. And really, if we think about it, like in Luke, in Luke chapter 15, you know, Jesus gives an account that says, heaven rejoices when even just one sinner repents and believes. Can you imagine the party when 2,000 in just a couple hours? And so that's that moment we find ourselves in. It's just this moment of like bittersweet celebration. You've got these two guys that are imprisoned by the guys who literally uh, threw Jesus up on a cross. And so it's, it's this, this tense moment that we kind of find ourselves in. And so overnight, again, we can only imagine how well or how they didn't sleep at all, wondering what was going to happen to them the next day. And then the next day as they get up and they get let out of prison, they go before uh, essentially like a quorum or a council. Now, according to Jewish culture back then, with all the, the, the priests and kind of what was uh, accustomed to that day, this number would have been anywhere from about, I think the official quorum number had to be a minimum of 23 people, uh, but all the way up to, I think the total group was like 71. And so somewhere in that spectrum, and note, noting that there was probably quite the commotion, uh, it was probably on the upper level of that spectrum. So you probably got well over 50 people against Peter and John. And so they're led to them, and they mentioned four people specifically. Annas, Caiaphas, Alexander, and John. So these four people are mentioned, and specifically in verse 6, Luke says that they are the high priestly family. Now, this isn't just like a tongue-in-cheek way of being like, hey, they were really close, and they always just kind of traveled together. These are literally family members. So Annas would have been uh, kind of the, the big, like the, imagine like a president, like it's like, you know, George Bush or Obama, like they're always kind of president. Like you always imagine them still as president, whoever. And that's kind of the idea with, with high priests at the time, that even though uh, Annas was no longer the high priest, he was still like, hey, that guy, he helped negotiate through Roman rule. He did a bunch of stuff for us. So very highly regarded at the time. And Caiaphas would have been his son-in-law and current high priest. And so Alexander and John are some other family members that were there kind of along for the ride. But specifically those two people, Annas and Caiaphas, that I think are really important to note. Because when Jesus was led to the council uh, to talk and to basically make his case, he's first brought to Annas. So Annas, again, after his high priestly time, Jesus is brought to Annas. And Annas, Annas doesn't like this Jesus guy. And so Annas at the time sends him to his son-in-law because, hey, I don't want to do the dirty work, hey. I'm going to send him after my son-in-law, what a father-in-law he was. Uh, sends him off to his son-in-law, and it's actually Caiaphas who says, we're putting him to death. We're not dealing with this anymore. So again, these are some bad dudes uh, at a time that's crucial to the life of the early church. The second point I want to make is actually about the word Sadducees and who the Sadducees were. Because we, we kind of get, there's all the E's, right? When you're going through those, you have the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Maccabees. There's, there's, there's all these different groups. Uh, but specifically, the, the, the two I want to focus in on are the Pharisees, who we hear a lot about when we talk, 
through the Gospels, and the Sadducees. So Pharisees were ones who, um, they were kind of the ones who believed in the oral tradition of the law. So they were the storytellers. They were the ones who'd kind of, you know, share through the Old Testament, and they would, you know, talk about the interpretation. Um, But they were often seen more as like the common man's high priest official people. And so with that, they also tended to take things a little bit more liberally. And they were the ones who Jesus oftentimes through the gospels got the most frustrated with because they would say, well, you have to do this and this. Oh, and this. And so they'd build these, these pillars of essential doctrine that obviously when you hear the words of Jesus were not essential doctrine. So you had the Pharisees, but actually oftentimes they actually argued with the Sadducees. So they were not on the same team here. And so the Sadducees were ones that we would consider a little bit more conservative. So they were the ones that were very literal interpretation of the law and anything beyond that, any of those liberal interpretations like, how dare you? So they were also the ones at the time that really had a a, a tight rein on the politics of the time. So they were essential players. They were the movers and shakers within the community, and especially when it came to negotiating Roman rule at the time. So they, these characters, the, uh, the Annas and, and the Caiaphas, they were ones who were, uh, again, movers and shakers in the community, highly regarded through there, but also, you know, incredibly wicked. So throughout the book of Acts, you're going to hear a lot about the Sadducees because the ones, the group that the Sadducees really were frustrated with and the thing that they didn't agree with were anything of the supernatural. So anything like, well, obviously the resurrection, Sadducees weren't, weren't big fans of that. Um, but they also weren't big, big fans of like angels and spirits. And so throughout the book of Acts, as the Holy Spirit continues to do miraculous things, it's going to be the Sadducees that you often see are the ones pushing back against the early church and trying to figure out ways uh, basically to push it down. So what we see in Acts 4 is this question. So they bring him out of prison. They bring Peter and John in front of the Sadducees, in front of the, the officials, and they ask him this. By whose name are you doing this? And through what power are you doing this? So two things that they mention with this. One, it's this, this Jewish tradition within the culture of this. Have you guys are familiar with the word shmika? Daniel talked about it, I think, like a year ago, honestly. Um, but it was this idea of like, you had these rabbis, and they were, they were modern-day celebrities. So these rab- rabbis would walk through the streets, and they would, like, cast judgment on certain communal issues. And so they'd go into a situation, they'd speak into it, and they'd speak wisdom. And then oftentimes they'd kind of have, like, a, a group of disciples or apprentices or something like that. And so this idea of shmika was this idea of, like, okay, like, who did you study under? Like, whose authority are you saying these things? Uh, and whose authority are you able to say these things? The second part is actually based on Old Testament stuff. So you kind of had these officials that the idea was to go in and make sure you squash anything that didn't belong. So you don't have to turn there. I'm going to have it up on the screen. But specifically in Deuteronomy 13, again, a command uh, from God to the people, to the chiefs, to the priests regarding kind of protecting your people. It says this, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams rises among you and gives you a sign or wonder, And the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass. And if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So these people, I mean, they were in very good intentions. They said, hey, who are you studying under? Like, we just need to know kind of who that, that training lineage is. 
And then the flip side's like, hey, we got to make sure that you, you know, healing this guy, like, we got to make sure we don't need to, like, ignore you and cast you aside. So it's kind of this move of power and intimidation that they, they step up and they kind of bow up a little bit to Peter and John. But here's the issue. And I think this is, again, something for us to kind of echo as we think about discernment in our own lives. These guys, they knew their Bible. Inside and out, up and down. They memorized, they knew their Bible. But they didn't know Jesus. And that's the issue. You can know your Bible, but if you don't know Jesus, you're one of these guys. So Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, when he's asked this question, oh man, he brings it. He hits them with a logic that they couldn't argue with. He, he hits them with some truth that they just can't refute. And really, he hits them with some discernment that can only come from God himself. So I want to read it to you again in Acts 4, the words of Peter. Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has come to the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter, amen, brother. That's, woo. Hey, he's a fiery dude. What can I say? And so he quotes Psalm 118, which they would have been well familiar with, that says the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So he's speaking their language. He knows how they're going to listen, and <laughs> did they listen? So the statement of exclusivity, of saying that it's through Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, that this man is standing before us today. And really... What's fascinating, again, being filled with the Holy Spirit, what we see here is that the Holy Spirit is not this, this emotional high. Like, Peter wasn't writing this emotional high and, and, and using that to use logic and reason to work with these guys. Rather, what we see in the book of Acts, whenever we see the Holy Spirit coming down into the people or into a person, what we see is it's moments of evangelism. So it's moments where either evangelizing to yourself, preaching the gospel to yourself, or the outward evangelism into somebody else, that that's where we see the Holy Spirit working. Because oftentimes it's easy for us when we hear the Holy Spirit, man, we think of that, again, that, that me-centered, selfish dopamine hit. Whenever that, oh, whenever that song comes on, you guys all have a song. I know what it is. You know, we all have that song that, like, man, if Scott and the band starts playing that song, woo, mm, you feel it, right? That's not necessarily the Holy Spirit. That's that dopamine rush. You feel the hair on the back of your arms and the back of your neck tingle a little bit. Guys, when the Holy Spirit descends on something, it's characterized by the outward evangelism or the inward evangelism of yourself, not an overly sensitized version of emotion. And this is important to know as we're working through the book of Acts. Do not get it twisted to understand that these people, they were, I mean, it's hard to feel good when you're being persecuted like this, but these men, through the power of the Holy Spirit, are able to speak and to let others know 
who Christ really was. And so what we see starting in verse 13 is just this really interesting dynamic between Peter and John and these chiefs. Because this is the first time that these, that really this early church, this young budding church, has ever come across these guys. This is the first record. And what's funny, like I said earlier, these guys had no idea who these, the, these jokers were. So these guys are creating this commotion. Chiefs try to come up to them and try to squash it down. And they had no idea who Peter and John were. But they figured out real quick. So starting in verse 13, they say this. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. First of all, I kind of wish that described me sometimes. Like, eh, I don't know what that guy's talking about, but the guy knows Jesus. But the second part is this. Let's not get it twisted when it comes to like Peter and John. They were often portrayed as idiots. Like they were portrayed as uncommon, uneducated, or common, uneducated men. But they just spent three years in the greatest seminary that has ever lived. Like you're talking 24-7 access to a personal tutoring by the author and perfecter of our faith. And really, history has been littered with men, both uneducated and educated, that has continued to push the kingdom forward. We look at men of the Bible like Moses, the prophet Daniel, and Paul, incredibly educated and intelligent men. And even a little bit more modern, looking at Augustine, Martin Luther, and Billy Graham, all of these men incredibly intelligent and educated, using that to push the kingdom forward. The flip side is, man, the kingdom just continues to push forward through the faithfulness and the Holy Spirit promptings of uneducated men. People like Peter, and John and David, who his really only redeeming qualities were that he's a pretty good shepherd and dude could really jam on a harp. That's really about it. But then you also have guys like Charles Spurgeon and D.L. Moody who were men who just faithfully and boldly, even in their uneducated state, pushed the kingdom forward. Because here's the thing. It's easy for you to do this, but this is my prompting for you in this. Do not immediately discredit those who you feel like don't know any better. When that person who's young in the faith says something to you and you're just like, you haven't lived yet, you don't know. Don't discredit them for that. Maybe it's the Holy Spirit prompting through them to say something maybe you need to hear. But the flip side is this. Don't ever believe that full-time ministry is reserved for those more educated. Don't believe that that full-time ministry, full-time service, full-time getting it for Jesus is reserved for those people who get a paycheck to do it. All right? And that's important for us to know as we hear this. Like, these are uneducated. This dude's a fisherman. He doesn't know any better. No amount of stupidity and no amount of intelligence will keep you from doing the thing God has called you to do. All right? And that's important for us to know. Let that sink in today. That as you're going and wanting to reach out to people, if you're not good enough, good. That's where God wants you to be. And so these men who, again, these, these priests finally kind of clicks with them. These guys, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Those are the guys who've been with Jesus. I remember those guys. Again, Caiaphas, he, oh, yeah, I recognize that guy. But there's something that's really interesting. We go back to that crippled man. A crippled man all of a sudden is a testament to the power 
of Christ in that moment. And so what we're going to do is read verses 14 through 21. But I'm going to read it in a different version. Uh, it's, it's a version that I call the EESV. It is the uh, Exner English Standard Version. So I'm going to have it up on there as regular ESV, but I'm going to kind of talk through it as I would just share a story. So the chiefs and officers, seeing the man that they had been seeing in front of the temple for over 40 years, who was always crippled, all of a sudden isn't. So they don't know what to do. They had nothing to say. They couldn't logic their way out of this one. So when they told these two men to leave, they conferred with one another. Some might say a uh, holy huddle. So they get together. They draw it in, draw it in. What are we going to do about these guys? I mean, there's no denying that that, that's pretty incredible. Um, well, here's the issue. We can't let him keep going. Because you guys remember that Jesus guy, right? Yeah, yeah, no, 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 he's no good. Um, all right. Well, we got to get him to leave. We, at the very least, we have to get them to leave. Okay, 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 let's do that. Okay. Get out of here. Go. Do not speak or teach in the name of Jesus anymore. Peter and John. Well, okay, uh, I hear you. Yes, uh, valid point. Um, but all I can do is just say the things that I've seen. All I can do is just speak of the things that I've heard and let the cards fall where they will. And then further, the chiefs and the priests got even more angry because they realized more and more that they couldn't do anything about it. So they told him, hey, remember what we did to Jesus? We'll do the same to you too. So go. So in that note, Peter and John, when confronted with the very people that killed Jesus, hey, they called him to the curb. They showed him the actual power of the person that they killed was, and they just gave him a taste of it. And so overall, it's a great win for that early church. It's a great win for that. But today I want to take a little bit of time and talk about one man in this story specifically. You know, last week we talked about the crippled man, but today I want to talk about Peter. Now, Peter is just such a fascinating character. If you look at just his life through the, the history, the written history of the Bible, because plain and simply, he's one of the greatest disciples to have ever lived. And when we read in Matthew 16, Jesus told Peter in front of everybody that would listen, in front of all the other disciples, like in front of everybody else, Jesus calls Peter the rock that he was going to build his church on. So, I mean, it's, it's a bold statement to make. And spoiler, as we progress through the books of, of Acts, he will. Like Peter will be on the front lines and he will be the one truly doing this. He's the one, the corner. He is the rock of which the church will be built on. But here's what's interesting about Peter is that the Holy Spirit comes down and he obviously heals this crippled man. But he does something else in Peter that I don't think we should ignore. And I think it's important for us to note because in this story, there are three things that happen that Jesus does through the work of the Holy Spirit. He heals, he restores, and he redeems. It's three things, heals, restores, and redeems. Because here's the truth about Peter. He was far from perfect. If we go through the Gospels and just walk through some of the big points in his life, dude failed often. It's like, let's start in Mark chapters 9 and 10. So there's I mean, there's countless moments of Peter, like when Jesus would share a story or a parable, where Peter, it would just go up here. 
Like Peter had no idea what was going on. And so Jesus would kind of do the, like the, oh, bless your heart, here you go. And he'd have to like explain everything to him. But then there's also like countless other moments where like, okay, so you remember the verse where Jesus says, you know, bring, come bring all the children, all the little children to me. You know, it's, it, you see all the illustrations of it. It always is kind of a, a fun picture in our mind. But do you know the reason why he had to say that? It's because Peter was literally like stiff arming kids out of the way. Like he's like shoving babies out of the way, being like, no, Jesus has to rest. Like just adamant that like, no, this is how it has to be. And so Jesus like, Peter, chill, bro. Like <laughs> kids can come, it's okay. And then he's able to make a lesson out of it. But then even like further on in Mark 10, uh, we see a, a story where the, the disciples are following Jesus. They're, they're walking along and, and uh, they ask, Peter asked Jesus, hey, who is the greatest among us? Again, a spoiler alert, it's not, because he, it's not because Peter's over here being like, James, nah, you're the greatest. And James is over here being like, nah, Peter, like, you're the best. Like, he's saying that because Peter's like, hey, tell everybody else that it's me. Like, let's, let's just set the record straight. Let's make sure that they know that I'm the greatest. Again, you're talking about the leader of a church? <laughs> That's not the guy I want to be following. That's not the guy that I'd go to war with. He's like, all right, jerk, I'm going to go over here instead. But that's what we see is time and time again, a man who is characterized by this innate ability to not listen, to speak really quickly and loudly, and take action before actually thinking. So like in John 13, when Jesus is washing the feet of his disciples, Peter's response in that moment, instead of receiving that moment, that gracious gift of Christ, his first words are this, you shall never wash my feet. Or even in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus is literally sweating blood. He's so in angst and turmoil that he's sweating blood. You want to know where Peter is? He's napping in the corner. Like this guy that I have been following for years, like you tell me you can't pick up on a little bit of tension within the guy you've been following for three years. And yet he just completely ignores it. And when Jesus comes and tells Peter to come with him, he dozes off in the corner. And then even when, when the Roman officials come in to take Jesus to help him fulfill the very thing he came to earth to do, he doesn't say anything. He just lops off an ear. He just, hey, no, you're not getting Jesus. Yeah, go through my dead body. Like, again, action before thinking. But then even more, in, in Matthew 26, Jesus says, Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. Peter, no, 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 like I'm the greatest, like I'm not going to do that. Spoiler, he does. Um, And before the rooster crows, he has denied three times in front of a multitude of people. But what we see, and again, going back to this, Jesus heals, he restores, and he redeems. So what we see is Jesus, when he has resurrected, he, he he goes after Peter. Again, in that limited window of time where he is on earth as a resurrected Christ, what does he do? He seeks out Peter. Because here's the truth of the matter. He didn't feel good. Like there's multiple records where Peter is just ridden with guilt. So in John 21, I'm going to have the story up here. We see the moment that Jesus reaches out to Peter. He says this. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two others of the disciples were together. 
Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. Again, go back to what you know. I feel bad. I'm going to go fishing. And they said to them, hey, we'll go with you. They went out, got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. Relatable. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was him. So he's far enough away that they, again, a guy you spent three years with, like, you can't recognize him from that point. Jesus said to them, children, you got any fish? Hey, guys, you caught anything yet? They answered, nah. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat. You'll find some. And they did. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of the fish. The disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it's the Lord. Hey, that's Jesus over there. When Simon Peter heard this, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work. So dude's in, you know, some jorts, I'm sure. Um, he threw on his clothes and he jumped out of the boat to swim after Jesus. So excited, but at the same time, probably, probably feels real, real guilty. You see, in the lowest moment of Peter's life, riddled with guilt and shame, Jesus reaches out to Peter and he restores him. Jesus takes the brokenness Jesus takes the guilt, the shame, the doubts, the struggles, the weaknesses, the disgraces, all the embarrassments that just keep replaying in his head, and he restores him. He makes us whole. Makes us whole and complete, lacking in nothing. And what we see here in Acts chapter 4, we see a man who is always characterized as a man who acts before he thinks. He's angry at the very moment, he's probably really, really embarrassed because he, he just embarrassed himself in one of the most public ways imaginable. When his savior, when his leader, when he had the moment to stand up, he didn't. Do you think as he was talking to these chiefs and officials that he wasn't aware of his uneducatedness? Do you think he wasn't aware of the fact that he just grew up a fisherman? And yet here he is in front of the chiefs and the Sadducees. Do you think that he remembered all those times that he said the wrong thing or didn't say anything at all when he was supposed to? Or that in that moment when he's staring at the very face of the people who killed Jesus, that he couldn't hear that crow over and over again? Yet, how often is this how Christ works in our lives? He takes that very thing that was such a tender moment, that event where we are embarrassed and we don't know what to do with it. He has us enter into that space to restore and to redeem. In Colossians chapter 2, it says this, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all, all of our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Because Christ restores the very parts of us that are the most empty. That's what it means to restore. There's an emptiness there. He restores us. Why? So that he can redeem that for a higher purpose. The redemption of Peter in this moment is the opportunity for him to face his past. And yet, the Holy Spirit and the work of Christ, he's able to redeem it in a way 
that strengthens the kingdom of God. Because really when you look at organizations and ministries and, and churches, you know, of all the things that we do here, whether it's Conquer, Healing the Wounded Heart, the Green Book, uh, the Redemption Ministry, the people who really speak about it are the ones who know. They know. They've been there. And yet through the power of Christ, through his restoration and his redemption, they see the victory. And they're able to speak more about it. Because like Brad said, said last week, God has healed you. He has healed you so that you can pass from death to life. But why? He's done it so that you can be restored, so that very part of you can be redeemed, so that you can go tell others about him. Because here's what happens. In the rest of Acts chapter 4, what we see is it's out of that conversation that the people of God were emboldened. In verses 23 through 31, we see a group of believers who they are, man, they're fired up. They see their man, Peter, he boldly stood before the officials, and man, they are feeling it, because why? Christ heals, restores, and redeems so that we can boldly go. And that's what we see. The good news is that boldness begats more boldness. Like when you are bold for something and somebody sees that, that's going to encourage them to be bold. That's the good news. The bad news is that Satan knows that too. So back then what he would do is he would persecute that early church by beheadings, uh, by prison, beatings, flogging, whatever it took. Satan's job was to try and make sure that that didn't happen by squashing boldness and make them afraid. But how does he do it now? Obviously, we don't see beheadings in the streets of Springfield. How does he do it? It's through worldliness. It's through the need for acceptance, for the need of, of status. Guys, have you thanked the Lord for persecution? Like, have you, in those times of maybe feeling alienated from my faith or like, oh, this might be really weird, like, praise God for that. That's where God wants you. He wants you to step into those spaces because that is where the power of the Holy Spirit can work. He's, he does these things. He heals, he restores, he redeems not so that we can be comfortable, but that we can be uncomfortable. He does this so that we can boldly go do the things we didn't think we could do. He does it so that the fishermen can go speak in front of the educated officials and tell them what's what. He restores and redeems so that we can boldly go and help the single mother that we didn't think we'd ever talk to. He does this so that we can boldly go and become a foster parent. We don't think we have the strength or the bandwidth to do it. He does it so that we can meet that college student, even though I don't know enough about the Bible, I don't know, I'm not equipped for this. He does these things so that we can boldly go and meet with people who need to know more about him. He does this so that we can boldly go to a foreign country and speak the gospel to people who have never heard it. He does it so that we can boldly go and have that conversation with our parents, with our unbelieving family members that they'll never do it. They would never go to church. There's no way. That is where the Holy Spirit works the most. He does these things so that we can go do this, so that we can do the work of the ministry. God sees your faults not as shortcomings that are going to hold you back, but rather as opportunities to boldly lock arms with people they know that, who know that struggle. You can boldly lock arms with people so that you can boldly go and share with those who need to hear it the most. So Hill City, we are the crippled man. We are. For years, 
we lay in the dirt. For years, we drag ourselves through the muck and the mire of life. And here's the thing. We're just hoping and begging for scraps. Hoping and begging for scraps of attention. Hoping and begging for scraps of status, of something, of somebody to look at me. Stop avoiding eye contact. Like, that's what we're hoping for. But yet Jesus, but Jesus comes, he picks us up, he heals us so that we can be restored and we can be redeemed so that we, Hill City, can boldly go and speak that good news to people who need to hear it the most. Praise God. Use your testimonies as you do that. Again, the, the, the biggest thing that the officials couldn't speak back to it was the lame man standing next to them. That's your story. If you are the lame man and you are now standing, they can't say anything back to that. All right? Let's pray.